known for teaching Buddhist psychology. My background's in psychology. That's what my, uh, a lot of my education and life training and the counseling work and all that is in, but it's very important uh, being also an empowered Buddhist teacher to push myself to do things that require me uh, both challenging myself and also owning up to you uh, things that uh, are important for me to acknowledge. So here's, here it goes. Okay, so there's a story about two young fish and uh, they're in the ocean and then the, another older fish comes up and says to them, um, how's the water today? And the two younger fish nod and they keep swimming along. And then one of the younger fish looks to the other and says, what's water? And what that means is that in our, it's a metaphor for in our lives there are things that are so endemic to our culture that we don't notice them. When I first heard the phrase white privilege, I had two reactions. The first was, of course, I grew up in a family that, it, when I was six, took me to march with Dr. Martin Luther King. Anti-Semitism was pretty ripe throughout my mom's entire life. And it's very easy for me to, to just feel that easy kind of, of course. But then there's also this response in me that was one I would call white fragility or white defensiveness, which is, yeah, but I haven't had that much privilege. I grew up in a poor neighborhood. All my life people, have, when, they, when I've come around, have pulled their children away from me because of my tattoos and also because of my earlier life as a drug addict before I got sober 22 years ago. And I still today feel an enormous amount of fear the moment a policeman looks at me because I was there in 1988 when the police rioted and beat up all us punks simply because we were punks. So it's easy to just use my autobiography as a kind of shield to not own up to the enormous amount of privilege I have had in my life. It conceals the amount of constant exploitation that I am benefiting from. Every time I go to a store, it's easy to think, oh, I'm responsible for getting my food and not understand or reflect on all the hands that went into bringing, harvesting that food, bringing it and putting it on the shelves, as if, oh, I did all that. It's easy for me to forget that I was born into a society where I, as a white person, have a 4% chance of being incarcerated in my life, whereas a person of color has a 28% chance, seven times greater. No, it's actually 30%, so it's 7.5 times greater. I'm sorry, I underestimated how bleak this country is. 28% of black children are born in poverty, 8% of whites. Now, of course, 
America is not unique in this amount of racism that is built into our system. When I traveled to England, I was amazed at the way people of Pakistani birth who are English were treated there. And Germany and in France, Tunisian and Algerian population is shunted into horrific ghettos. And in Australia, the aboriginal population is treated like shit. Capitalism is built on exploitation, period. It's his lifeblood. There is no such thing as capitalism without marginalizing and excluding entire populations of people. Every place there's been capitalism, there has been a dominant ideology that justifies the lack of opportunity and the systemic marginalization of massive populations. But one of the strongest ways that I believe that white privilege is endemic and me, I just want to own up to this myself, is that as a white person it's so easy for me to believe that my experience is universal. I grew up turning on the TV and people who looked a fuck of a lot like me were on television and I got to watch Seinfeld where literally my Jewish Upper West Side experience was right there on television being acted out before me. So how easy it is it for me to believe that when I say we or when I speak that I'm somehow representing everybody. Despite the anti-Semitism that my mom experienced in her life, she never had to worry about telling me, Josh, if you just work hard, if you just are creative, if you just get an education, and she told all, me all these things as if it was naturally easy to get, that everything would be okay. That's not true for a huge amount of people that live in this country. My dad, even though I wish he had, never had to tell me how to survive an encounter with the police. <laughs> I subsequently wish he did, but he never, never occurred to him. But I think for about 30% of the population, that's a conversation that happens a lot. But don't let me represent the experience of others. I'd like to quote one of my lifelong heroes. My voice breaks when I think of this because it was so important to my mother, who was one of his most ardent admirers, the writer James Baldwin, who debated William F. Buckley at Oxford. And if you don't know who William F. Buckley was, think Trump in the pressure of that situation in front of Oxford says this extemporaneously. It comes as a great shock around the age of six to discover that the flag to which you have pledged allegiance along with everybody else has not pledged any allegiance to you. To discover that when you were rooting for Gary Cooper to kill off the Indians, that the Indians were you. 
to discover that the country of your birthplace to which you owe your life and identity has not in its whole system of reality, and that's for me the key, the whole system of reality, evolved any place for you. The demoralization based on the color of your skin accelerates through a whole lifetime in interactions with policemen, taxi drivers, waiters, landlords, banks, the millions of details happening 24 hours of every day which spell out to you that you are a worthless human being. I've never experienced that 24 hours a day. Foucault, one of my, another one of my heroes, a great philosopher, says that all of our institutions, education, judicial, medical, political, and the arts, conceal marginalization and systemic not including other people. It rests on a meta-narrative, which is an underlying story that's not said, but is beneath everything, a meta-narrative that white scientists and white doctors are our heroes who will solve all of humanity's issues. In films, we see movies like The Right Stuff, where white astronauts are paraded and heralded, whereas the rich involvement of people of color is nowhere to be found. Scully, it's understandable that he gets a movie, but what of the countless other heroic acts of people of color? Where's their movie? And Patriot's Day, my favorite, where the whitest of white, Mark Wahlberg, saves Boston from terrorists. Dharma is often presented by white teachers with a blind assumption that it affords the same exact release to all people the exact same way. Now, I believe that the Dharma can be of liberation for all, but is it equal, even in and of itself? For example, it's very easy for me as a white person to give a talk on the Buddhist concept of anatta, which is the lack of a core identity. But then I get to walk out of here and nobody is shoving my identity back into my face immediately. I don't go into a store where surveillance suddenly is trained on me. I don't walk down the street, well sometimes I do, but nowhere near what a person of color experiences and have my, the color of my skin forced again and again and again and again and again. As the wonderful Angel Kyoto Williams who wrote the book Radical Acceptance along with Rod Owens said, sometimes love is not enough. It's easy for a white teacher to say acceptance and love is all you need because that basically says, yes, accept all of the institutions and conditions that make life easy for us. But is that really all that's necessary if we are to be spiritual practitioners? The history of the Dharma is often concealed in the way it's taught. I've heard so many teachers say that the Buddha just stumbled across these universal truths as if he got lucky, that Indian guy 2,500 years ago. And there's very little acknowledgement that for 2,400 years of its existence, the Dharma was single-handedly 
preserved, not by white people, but by people who lived in the Indian subcontinent and in Thailand and in Burma and in Sri Lanka and in Tibet and in Nepal and Bhutan. We like to present us Buddhist teachers that the Buddha's great revolutionary donation to civilization, his greatest gift to us, was that he discovered mindfulness, sati, or that he was the one that found anatta. But really, if you delve deep into Buddhist history, the Buddha was most noted for the fact that he overthrew in his Sangha the caste system of India. In India, like today, there was a very, very, it was in fact even more strongly held caste system. There were four castes. Three of them were for the rich. Brahmins were the priests, Kshatriyas were the administrators, Washiyas were the merchants, the merchant class who never did work, they just traded and sold things. And then there was the Shudras, which were the untouchables. And if you were Shudra, you were the one who did the work. You were the backbone. You were about 99% of the society, but you were not touchable. The Buddha radically broke with this, and he insisted that the children of the rich who were, were raised to believe that those were not human beings had to sit and live with and eat from the same bowls as the Shudra. This was what was so revolutionary about the Buddha. And also his inclusion of women in the Sangha, which was about 400 years before women were accepted in monastic life and other uh, religious systems or spiritual systems. I'll close with a couple notes. In the Vasala Sutta, the discourse on the outcasts or the untouchables, the Buddha is getting a little rough because he's been living in the jungle for a long time uh, with his followers and he goes out to beg for food, which is the life of a monastic. You go out with your alms bowl and they still do this in Thailand. It's a very beautiful ceremony. They go out and the Buddha is now scruffy and he's been living without any access to the things that he used to have as a rich kid. Now he's been in the jungle for 10 years. He goes out with his bowl and he walks up to a Brahmin holding his bowl out for food and the Brahmin says, stay away from me, you filthy outcast. And the Buddha looks up and at that moment the Brahmin realizes that he's talking to the famous Gotama and the Buddha says, do you know what an untouchable is? And the Brahmin is shaken. He goes, no. And the Buddha says, anyone who kills, anyone who oppresses, anyone who rapes, anyone who fa fails to share their wealth, and then he looks at the guy, <laughs> who conceal their, anyone who conceals their selfishness or unskillfulness, those who try to harm others with words. He's essentially telling the guy, this Brahmin, that he's an untouchable. And then the Buddha repeats three times in the sutta, no one is born untouchable 
or wise. It's solely their acts that make them so. That, for thousands of years, until somehow in this country that sutta is forgotten, that was one of the most quoted lines of the Buddha. As a white person, I believe it starts by acknowledging, first off, the privilege that I've had and the fact that my experience does not represent the experience of all. It's important for me to constantly reflect and talk with the people and, uh, of the Sangha that are of color and in my life counseling. To be willing also to view ourselves as iterations of a larger system which is still deeply unjust and unfair. It moves through us like water moves through a fish. If you're interested in hearing more about this, I would really recommend Radical Dharma by Angel Kyoto Williams and Rod Owens or Awakening Together by Larry Yang. That's tonight's talk. I thank you for listening. I'm going to turn